Uh, organised by SEMA and St Paul's Institute. And St Paul's Institute, very, very grateful to them for organising this in such an iconic building. Um, this building um, built clearly in the aftermath of the Great Fire of London in 1666, when London itself was ripe with corruption and bribery. To get on, to do anything in London at that time, you had to know the way around the system. You had to pay bribes. You had to be effectively corrupt. Um, not long before that, 1623, John Dunn, who was uh, Dean of St Paul's, an earlier uh, building St Paul's, wrote that man is the sewer of all corruption. So on that perfect note, I'd like to start <coughs> proceedings tonight um, and this isn't aimed at the individual who's now going to stand up. <laughs> he didn't mean that man, he meant that man. Um, I'd like to introduce Sir Roderick McCauley. Um, and we're going to have four presentations that should last 35 to 40 minutes, um, and that will give us hopefully uh, plenty of time to get into questions. Uh, we finish at 7.45 on the dot. Um, Robert will leave at that, at that point. Um, just before then, I will then ask um, Charles Tilly, who's Chief Exec of SEMA, uh, uh, to sum up uh, the evening and thank you all for coming. So if I can ask Roderick uh, to talk. Roderick is a barrister, um, now working as a policy advisor to the Ministry of Justice on criminal law issues and currently managing the implementation of the Bribery Act at the Ministry of Justice. Um, as you may know, he, for the past four years, he's led on the development of UK government policy on the reform of criminal law of bribery, <coughs> managing both the pre-legislative scrutiny of the draft legislation in 2009 and the whole way through the Bribery Act in 2010 uh, through the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Roderick. Thank you very much, Jeff. Yes, I've been doing it for far too long, obviously. Um, right, so the guidance is now published, the much awaited guidance. It's published on the Ministry of Justice website along with a quick start guide and a government response to consultation. It's an important step because the publication of comprehensive practical assistance to businesses is essential for the effective implementation of the Act. There will now be a three-month uh, familiarisation period, not a consultation period, I must stress, uh, before the Act is commenced on the 1st of July. Now, the Act obviously is intended to be a general application, but there was a very specific uh, focus on commercial bribery. Um, of course, the Act was generally motivated by the need to address the huge human and economic global costs of bribery, which undermine the ethical values upon which the operation of our society and institutions is founded. But in the context of commercial bribery, the Act and the guidance reflects the fact that simply bribery is bad for business. It distorts free markets and adds considerably to the cost of doing business and causes immense reputational damage to individuals, to companies and to UK PLC. The Act therefore adopts a robust approach, we make no apology for that. Two of the four offences in the Act focus specifically on commercial bribery. Now, the Act replaces 
the existing antiquated and fragmented law with a new modern legal landscape. The fundamental point about the Act is, of course, that it's mainstream criminal law. It's not seeking to establish a regulatory regime. There's no requirements of compliance uh, with a set of standards, and there's no monitoring of compliance. Now, the offences clearly reflect the global scale of the mischief that the Act addresses. For example, the general offences, the test as regards an improper performance, it's a UK-centric test. The jury has to ask themselves what a person performing that function or a like function would be expected to do in those circumstances in the United Kingdom. Now this reflects the UK's intention of contributing to national and international efforts to try and move away from the culture of bribery. I'm not suggesting that some cultures are inherently corrupt. I'm suggesting that there has emerged a a culture, if you like, of corruption in certain sectors in certain parts of the world. Another example, Section 6, is a specifically business-based offence designed to address the problems um, of, the, of corruption, of decision-making as regards publicly funded business opportunities overseas through the personal enrichment of officials. Another example, Section 7, seeks to enhance the capacity to hold businesses responsible and to bring them to account for bribes paid on their behalf. And the offence has global reach. Now, Section 7 is clearly not about imposing standards. It's very important for ministers that the Act was implemented and the guidance was drafted in a way that did not impose any unnecessary burden or costs on business. Rather, this is about supporting business community in its role in establishing and disseminating ethical standards. And this is a role that is already well developed, and this is where the expertise and the experience lies. It's not a role for governments. The government does not want to usurp that role. What we want to do is to encourage its development. And we do that principally through the adequate procedures defence to the Section 7 offence. The defence is based on adequate procedures because we recognise that no corporate bribery prevention regime can guarantee exemplary behaviour. The intention is to encourage commercial organisations to assess the bribery risks they face and to put in place the measures necessary to mitigate them if they've not already done so. But the Act does not oblige companies to do so. It's not regulatory. There's no prescription, no standard setting. Section 7 is innovative and wide in scope, there's no denying that. This means there are bound to be some issues that arise at the interface between the letter of the law and the realities of doing business in the global economy. These issues include the meaning of a relevant commercial organisation, the meaning of an associated person, the extent to which the Act catches hospitality and promotional expenditure, and the, uh, the question of facilitation payments. I'm sure we'll discuss these and many other issues this evening. The guidance we've issued does address these issues as, as part of assistance on how businesses may go about deciding what they need in the way of adequate procedures. The key message that needs to be put across is uh, to encourage a different mindset. At the moment, I all too often encounter a protection mindset a mindset based on how can I provide my company with legal protection, how can I make my um, company 
so that we can avail ourselves of the defence. That is no wrong mindset. The mindset needs to be more about prevention itself. How can I actually ensure or do my best to ensure that uh, people don't pay bribes on behalf of my company? This is not about a corporate safe harbour and it's not about paper compliance. Proportionality, of course, is the key. Proportionality now runs, to borrow a phrase, like a golden thread through the guidance, much more than it did um, in the draft guidance that was issued last year. Um, this is because there's such a wide variety of circumstances, size of company, structure, sector, markets, etc. And uh, we need to ensure that the the guidance um, has flexibility built into it and that the Act is implemented in a flexible way. Now the guidance is framed around six principles. The key features of the principles, I won't go into detail now, but the key features are, again, I, mustn't, I can't stress this enough, it's not regulatory. Of course, many people, for example, in the financial services sector, will already be subject to exactly that regulation administered by the Financial Services Authority and there are regulations and standards about bribery prevention procedures in the financial sector as the insurance company Aon found to their cost. Principle one sets out the, the agenda for the rest of the principles. It's a bit like a meta principle. I was going to call it a meta principle but I thought it was a bit too pompous so I didn't in the end. Um, it notes the distinction between policies and procedures Policies are good and necessary, but they need to have practical manifestation through procedures that implement them. Although there is some overlap in the principles, such as due diligence, which is both a risk assessment tool and a risk mitigation tool, each principle, we believe, has a clear, distinct identity. Included within the document is a set of case studies. Now, these don't actually form part of the discharge by the Secretary of State of, of the duty under Section 9. But they're there to provide practical illustrations of the outcome or the application of the principles. And there is 11 case studies, most of them overseas facts, because um, domestically we have to uh, think um, everyone would agree that domestically bribery is not a major problem. It does exist, but it's not a major problem. So domestic case studies don't provide very good scenarios for the illustration of bribery prevention procedures. So most of them are overseas scenarios. We produced a quick start guide designed for those that need an accessible introduction to the concepts, which we believe will be particularly helpful to smaller businesses. Businesses that turn their back on bribery, uh, the signs are already, and I'm sure uh, Robert will talk about this later, do um, reap benefits. Of course, there is the increased competitiveness arising from reduced costs, but there's also the benefits arising from enhanced reputation. As cultures change and political risks tran uh, translate into sustainable business opportunities, and this, this is happening already. So, our aim, which I think we've achieved, through robust defences coupled with a broad, flexible statutory defence and the, the, the guidance that we've published under Section 9, we think strikes the right balance between the needs of justice, which I think you agree are great, and the, the legitimate concerns of businesses doing business today in the global economy. Thank you very much indeed.
think the the issues that are, are critical here is that link, that um, tension maybe between the letter of the law and reality. And um, I think it's a great opportunity for our next speaker, uh, Claire Igodaro, who is a former and past president of SEMA, um, is a board member, non-executive director of Lloyds of London, a huge amount of business experience and a huge amount of experience of business in the UK and worldwide. And um, Claire, look very much forward to your talk. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Can I also say thank you for finding such an appropriate setting for a discussion on bribery. Um, indeed, I find I struggle sometimes, Roderick, with the name Bribery Act, which seems to exhort me to go out and bribe someone rather than what its real intent is, but I'm sure that clever people will tell me why it's called that and not anti-bribery. Um, let me just take you back a little bit, um, uh, because before I'm here to share with you my thoughts on the Bribery Act implementation and the role of SEMA members, the role of accountants in business. But just as a background to that, I'd like you to take to what um, I what used to be called by my daughter, my youngest daughter was born in the 80s, the olden days, which meant the 70s, or any time when I was in her age, young, was the olden days. And um, in those olden days, particularly the 70s, when I used to um, go for job interviews as a young graduate trainee, I found myself um, viewed somewhat suspiciously at some of these job interviews, and I'd find that I'd spend the night reading about company strategy, looking up all the latest on accounting policy and practice, preparing, as I felt, perfectly adequately for interviews. And I would find that nobody would be that interested in that when I first got in. The question was always about, well, where do you come from? And my answer of Hammersmith, which is where the hospital I was born in was, until someone knocked it down and built luxury flats in a car park, um, but the answer of Hammersmith was never sufficient. And even when I tried harder and thought, they probably mean, where did you come from this morning? So I tried Twickenham. Didn't work either. And we used to get back to forebears. And the clarification, of course, is um, my forebears were from Africa, from Nigeria, and I had Nigerian links. Um, in the 70s, there would be some surprise that I wanted to be an accountant or a manager. Uh, and not as one HR director said to me, um, very helpfully, um, shouldn't you just from your culture, want to get married and have children. As it happens, I did want to do that as well, but that wasn't really the point. Anyway, the time moved on, and both mothers and minorities became able to make their own full and direct contribution to the world of work and to the economy. And the question of where I was from faded away, almost, except in genuine cases of interest. Now, did that bring joy and happiness? Well, not entirely. I was at a business gathering, and a colleague introduced me to a US partner we're working with, adding that you must talk to Claire. She'll have some insights here. We're talking about business in Africa. Um, she has Nigerian links. Well, he smiled, shook hands with me, and then he carefully counted each finger on his hand. Now, I was taken aback a little bit, and my colleague said, um, looked surprised, and he laughed and said, um, well, I've been told that whenever I shook hands with a Nigerian, I should count all my fingers afterwards. Now, it was, it was amusing in some ways, 
but it was also uncomfortable. Not personally, for me, as whilst happily reconciled to my ancestry, I also feel comfortably British as well, but I felt it was uncomfortable that bribery and corruption should be seen as a joke, particularly as it takes both a briber and a bribed to commit the offence. We might tell ourselves that that is the way that they do business, so there is little or no choice. And indeed, that has become, in some cases, the reality of the situation, thus making it almost impossible sometimes for business to feel they can break out of the vicious self-feeding, self-perpetuating cycle. The cycle of well-intentioned businesses in a low-corruption nation, and um, I, I do think, I, I do thank um, Transparency International, to be honest, for the work they do on helping to identify um, the, the uh, propensity towards, this, uh, towards poor behaviour. But what you have is the um, well-intentioned business in a low-corruption nation propping up the greedy few in what is, and at the expense, of course, of the starving many, in a so-called high-corruption nation. So that is why I personally do applaud the work done by the government, done by Roderick and done by Transparency International and the efforts also of business and professional bodies such as SEMA to get us to a point where the Bribery Act that aims, as the Minister for Justice has said, to make life difficult for the minority of organisations responsible for corruption but not to burden the decent and law-abiding businesses who just want to get out there and create opportunity and serve their customers. That burden is a real, or was certainly, when the Bribery Act was first muted, a real possibility. Yesterday, I googled Bribery Act training not Bribery Act in itself, which threw up loads of entries, but Bribery Act training. Um, and I found 1.8 million entries. I mean, I didn't go through them all, incidentally, just in case you're wondering. Um, but there were 1.8 million entries, and I have no desire to discourage innovative consultants who have something to offer businesses that need that expertise, and indeed, I'm sure there's some in this room at the moment. Um, but I, I felt concerned that industry as a whole tends to build, that the whole, that's a new industry tends to build up around any perceived change. I mean, who can forget the Y2K industry? Well, some of you might be too young, but I remember it anyway. I'm sure you do. But that developed around the Millennium Bug. And if you remember, there were a huge number of consultants offering solutions and policies and procedures to businesses. And businesses, spent quite a bit on this, sometimes unnecessarily, because they didn't look to what the problem was, they jumped at the solution. What we don't want is to leave organisations out of pocket, at the least, or worse, overladen with unnecessary and diversionary process at the worst. So should commercial organisations be worried? Is this degree of intrusion necessary? Well, I would argue no. Certainly not about being worried. And certainly not now that the guidance release has offered further clarification. But businesses should still be concerned. 
and they need to act, and they need to act now, whether they're managing their own risk review processes internally, or whether they're using external consultants. The Act itself, which encompasses both the offering and receiving of bribes privately, but some introduces these extra, um, the extra uh, points of bribing a public official and the corporate offence, the real big one, of failing to prevent bribery. And indeed, for those of us who work for complex organisations that operate globally, and it's not just commercial organisations, some of the organisations I, I work with are voluntary organisations who also operate globally and who have agents operating on their behalf, so also affected and should also be preparing um, and indeed will be happy, I would imagine, as long as they can do this in a manner which doesn't take them away from their main, um, their main activity, um, ought to be prepared to get their organisations ready for the implementation of the Act, but more important, of course, to create the culture, to build on the culture if they already have it, which means they're not falling into this trap of, bri of the bribery drags them into, in perhaps some of the territories in which they operate. And the penalties, of course, are very severe. Now, the CIMA, the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants, Code of Ethics for Professional Accountants, includes in its fundamental principles integrity, objectivity, professional competence and due care, and professional behaviour, which is compliant with the relevant laws and regulations in the territory in which the accountant is operating. So CIMA accountants have signed up at the point at which they've been through all their exams and professional experience and been made full accountants, have signed up to a professional code of ethics which encompasses all of this. And I would argue, therefore, that SEMA members, chartered management accountants, and other account others who signed up to a professional co ethics code are already well placed to engage in this area. And given their roles as accountants, finance directors, CFO, board members, whatever, they should already be doing so. If you look at the defence against the corporate code in, 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 in the Act, which is the one that's worried business most, the Adequate Procedures Guidance gives us six core principles, which Roderick referred to as proportionality, top-level commitment, risk assessment, due diligence, communication, monitoring and review. Many of us in this room should be actively involved and actively engaged in the driving of the oversight of the risk assessment and due diligence in our organisations, determining that policies are proportionate and in ensuring that they are properly communicated, monitored, reviewed and, dare I add, enforced. This is what we should be doing already. Aside from the business and finance training that we have had, there is a great deal of help out there and I don't just mean the 1.8 million entries, which of course you can also pick from. But I've looked at the Transparency International's um, guidance, and they've published a full and helpful set book, which for those who are interested is almost a DIY manual um, for those who wish to look at their organisation and benchmark it against the Act. There are a number of others, accountancy firms, legal firms, all offer help. But internally within organisations, a lot of that expertise exists. A good internal audit function should already address strategic risk in their annual planning. And incorporating Bribery Act compliance, therefore, ought not to be a burden for them. I think I read, and I can't remember who, it might be one of you in this room who said it, but the comment that it has been asked whether business can afford this legislation, 
especially at a time of economic recovery? And it is a good question to ask. But the choice is a false one. We don't have to decide between tackling corruption and supporting growth. Addressing bribery is good for business because it creates the conditions for free markets to flourish. Just briefly, another quick anecdote, and if you have my name, you get told a lot of these tales and they become apocryphal and sometimes tedious. But I remember being introduced, talking to another colleague, another um, accountant, not a senior accountant, I hasten to add, who um, was saying to me um, when he heard I was Nigerian, do you know, he said, the strange thing is Nigeria was the only country where I used to have to ring up to ask how much extra to put on my invoices. Now, that worried me immensely. But there you are, there are people who feel they have been so pulled and sucked into a culture by others that they can't see the way out. We might tell ourselves that this is the way they do business, they do business. So there is little or no choice. And indeed that does become the reality of the situation, thus making it almost impossible to break out of this vicious, self-feeding, self-perpetuating cycle. The cycle of well-intentioned business propping up the greedy few in this high corruption, so-called high corruption nations. But the majority of UK business does not want to be in this situation and is supportive of measures that enable the self-fulfilling cycle to be broken. So the challenge for business is how to compete against the compulsion of bribery. The trick for government is to continue to push for a level playing field amongst exporting nations, particularly in this declared export-led recovery and to provide the ability to compete fairly for global business and to avoid creating further burden on UK businesses and their employees and customers through the perhaps muddled interpretation of the Act once it comes into action. For business, the trick is to continue to be innovative, creative and competitive in a framework of enhanced transparency and cultural change led from the top and embedded at all levels. And finally, for those tasked with policy implementation and oversight, such as SEMA members who are management accountants in business, who are CFOs, who are internal auditors or audit committee chairs, to see the wood for the trees and to recognise that our existing codes of ethics, by which we are already abiding, incorporate the fundamentals of the Bribery Act. And our sound training as chartered management accountants makes us ideally placed to lead the drive for risk-based, cost-effective management of the appropriate adequate procedures for our business. And a quick word of warning, when you do take on the lead in policy, please make sure that you are doing your job and not taking on responsibility for the whole board because this is about cultural change for the whole organisation, not about one person taking an additional role or a consultant being in charge of anti-bribery. The Bribery Act should be bread and butter, really, and Seaman recognises that that management accounts have a particular ethical responsibility to promote an ethics-based culture that doesn't permit practices such as bribery and are well-placed to reinforce the message of high ethical standards. Thank you. Claire, many thanks for that. There are quite a few issues there for us to consider, I think. Um, one, the aim is not to overpower business, um, to build a culture in business, and this um, link between the briber and the bribed. And Transparency International um, play a big part in looking at that link between the briber 
and the bribed. And we have tonight, I'm glad to say, Robert Barrington, who is Director of External Affairs at Transparency International UK, who are probably the most knowledgeable NGO in the world on uh, anti-corruption. Um, Robert was previously Director of Governance and Sustainable Investment at FNC Asset Management and CEO Europe of the Environmental Research Group, Earthwatch Institute. Therefore, he has a very, very wide range of knowledge on this subject. Robert. Thank you, Jeff, and good evening, everybody. Um, I don't have the, uh, the anecdotes, I'm afraid, um, but I, being Transparency International, I do have some statistics, and I'm going to test them out on you to see who knows, uh, who can guess. Um, first of all, just to give some, some background as to uh, why legislators around the world, not just in the UK, are putting in place things like the Bribery Act. The, the World Bank estimate of the annual amount of bribes paid does anybody want to guess? What's the size of the briber market? Well, I know the answer from your book, so I won't do this. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, somebody. Give me a guess. $10 billion. So $10, 10, $10 billion? You're, you're a vast optimist. One trillion. That's right. A trillion dollars. So we're not talking about a small amount uh, of bribes here. It's massive. I mean, you know, some of the figures being used for bailing out uh, Portugal or other countries are talking about a measly, you know, few billion, tens of billions of dollars. This is a trillion dollars of bribes being paid. Well, what kind of damage does it do? I want to um, tell you about a, uh, a study that's quoted in Paul Collier's book. Paul Collier, the Oxford economist, has written a, a fascinating book on uh, development called uh, The Bottom Billion. And he uh, quotes a study that traces $100 of development aid that goes into uh, the health system in Chad, destined for rural health centers. And uh, of the $100 that goes in at the top, guess how much comes out at the bottom for the rural health clinics? Anybody want to guess? It's $1. So now, of the 99 missing dollars in every 100, of course, it's not all going through, uh, through corruption. Uh, it will be fraud and mismanagement and stupidity and ignorance and theft and all sorts of other things. But the, the general estimates around of, uh, of how much uh, development money goes astray um, is between 20 and 30 percent. So one's talking about a fairly large amount. So this is a big business and it really hurts people on the ground. In that context, of course, the people in rural Chad who desperately need health care but just aren't getting it. Not because the money isn't put into the system but because people are stealing it along the way. Well. If you're a, an NGO like TI, what on earth do you do about that? I mean, where do you start? You know, a trillion dollars, huge self-interest in all sorts of people around the world in maintaining the system as it is, because a lot of people are getting very rich out of it. What do you do? Well, you know, one of the starting points has to be you make sure that the laws are in place. So at least you can say this is wrong and it's illegal. And that's part of what this Bribery Act is for. And of course, it's one thing having laws saying don't take bribes, but as the other panelists have said, you've got to have the laws that say don't pay the bribes. If there's one thing that really, really irritates my colleagues in Transparency International around the world, and we've got chapters in 90 countries, uh, it is the, the attitude that says all the bribe paying takes place in the countries that score badly on our Corruption Perceptions Index. And they rightly point out, as our other speakers has, that it takes two to tango, that you have the bribe payer as well as the bribe taker. And if you cut off the supply side, then you've solved part of the problem. Not the whole problem, but you've solved part of it. So that's the context in which we need to see this Bribery Act. And it's not by any means unique to the UK. One, one thing that's um, 
I mean a slightly distressing but perhaps inevitable aspect of the debate over the last few months uh, has been this sense that somehow the UK is going out on a limb, that we're, we're producing gold-plated legislation. I've even heard one comment in one of the newspapers, I won't shame them by naming which one, saying, you know, yet more of this legislation being passed down from Brussels. No, it's nothing to do with Brussels. It's, uh, but what it is, it, there's a global context here. And um, interestingly, the, uh, the chair of the OECD Anti-Bribery Working Group says he thinks that our Bribery Act is, uh, is actually pretty middle of the road. It's by no means the harshest, harshest legislation around the world. Now, I say, uh, with, uh, with deference to Roderick on the panel, Roderick, of course, wrote this uh, fantastic act. We at TI think it's a pretty good act. Um, you know, it does the business from our point of view. Um, we have reservations about the guidance. Indeed, our press release described it as deplorable. Uh, Roderick also wrote the guidance, so uh, <laughs> sorry, Roderick. Um, if you read the detail of our press release, you'll see we think it's deplorable because of the political intervention that has watered down the guidance in various ways. Uh, but some of the guidance is extremely helpful. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, I don't blame Roderick for having uh, uh, political masters who have forced uh, uh, unpleasant compromises on him. And clearly he can't talk about that because he's a civil servant, so I'll talk about it on his behalf. Um, <laughs> So, you know, some of the myths about the Act, it's, it's not gold-plated legislation. And there has been concern, I think legitimate concern, that um, it's going to uh, disadvantage British business in some way, that there won't be a level playing field. Well, of course, that would be true if uh, only British companies were prevented from paying bribes. That's not at all the case. There are, in our own Act, extraterritorial provisions, so, uh, so it can capture um, foreign companies as well. Uh, much other bribery legislation around the world is extraterritorial, including the, the US Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act, so that gets uh, uh, other companies. Um, and most importantly, uh, it's not just the UK that is uh, refreshing its legislation. That is happening around the world. The G20 has for the first time adopted corruption as one of its priorities. And one will see, in, I hope, in the, the November G20 meeting, uh, an announcement of various initiatives uh, to tackle corruption many of them um, focused on the corporate sector. So this is uh, a great advance for the UK. We're not out of step with everybody else. We shouldn't uh, uh, beat ourselves up about doing something uh, that is disadvantaging uh, our business. In fact, we've done something tremendous, tremendous for society, tremendous for the world, and indeed tremendous for business. There may be some short-term pain. Putting in place an anti-bribery system, that's difficult for some businesses if they haven't done it before. So there will be some short-term pain, perhaps some short-term investment. But uh, as Roderick has been at pains to point out, it shouldn't be disproportionate. You know, there's no point going overboard. If you're running a corner shop somewhere with absolutely no links overseas, don't put in place an anti-bribery system. Uh, if you're an oil and gas company operating in the Congo, put one in place that's pretty advanced. Um, so uh, you, you have to um, uh, be reasonable in your approach to these things. Just the final thing I'll say is um, we should remember uh, in all the noise about, um, uh, of, of criticism of the Act that there has been from certain newspapers, particularly uh, the Evening Standard, this is not an anti-business Act. This is an anti-bribery Act. It's designed to pre prevent the, the, the wrong, the evil that is bribe pay. That's what it's there for, and that's what it's intended to catch. So don't be kidded that this is somehow an anti-business Act. It's an anti-bribery Act. And the solution, if you're a business, is just make sure nobody in your business and nobody associated with you is paying bribes. Don't pay bribes, and you won't be caught by the Bribery Act. It's as simple as that. So well done, Roderick. Great act. Sorry about the guidance. It's good in parts. And um, thank you for the opportunity to speak this evening. Thank you.
Thank you, Robert. Um, it's truly a frightening amount of uh, money that gets paid in bribes a year. Um, and you do have a suppliers index, don't you, at, uh, at TI? We do. Yeah, yes, a, a, a bribe payers index. Bribe payers index, which is um, which is worth worth looking at, I think. Um, that leads us to, I think, very nicely to Gavin Ralston, who's our final speaker this evening. Um, Robert has talked about both the ethics or lack of ethics in, in paying bribes and the business context in which bribes are paid and the damage it does. Um, so we're very grateful tonight to have Gavin with us. Um, he is a lay canon um, for finance at St Paul's Cathedral and he's also global head of product and leading international asset manager at Schroeder Investment Management. Um, so he can uh, really take the issue of bribery from those two positions, ethically and from the point of view of, uh, of a major investment company who's dealing with businesses um, all over the world. Gavin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. When um, Rob Gordon from the St. Paul's Institute, who's hiding behind the camera over there, um, asked if I would participate in the seminar this evening on bribery, he said he would welcome my input as a practitioner. Um, <laughs> I hope he meant as a practitioner as a, in a business rather than in the operation of bribery. Um, what I want to do is two things. One is just put a bit of context around how we as a business view the Bribery Act and how it will fit in with existing practices, and then just finish up with a few reflections on the broader ethical context for what the Bribery Act is seeking to do. As background, Schroders is a, an international asset management firm. Um, the word international is important in this context because um, I think there's no doubt from our perspective that the risks of bribery are much greater outside the UK than they are in it. Um, about two-thirds of our revenues come from outside the UK. And wh when we um, first looked at the Bribery Act back in the spring of last year, one of the things we did was a, a risk-based analysis of where we were doing business in countries that might pose a higher than normal risk. And we used the Corruption Perceptions Index from Transparency International, and we found that we did business in six countries which are below 100 on that list, um, those being Argentina, Kazakhstan, Indonesia, uh, Kosovo, the Philippines, and Russia. So the first thing we did was to make sure that we had ultra-high standards in dealing with any clients there <clears throat> and that we trained all the individuals dealing with clients in those parts of the world to operate with, with the highest possible standards. My personal experience of um, a high-risk country, for want of a better word, is particularly in Romania. Now, Romania is... Um, I think it's in the 60s to, to uh, categorise it in the list. It's one of the, one of the countries that's been regularly censured by the European Commission as being one of the most corrupt in the European Union. Um, I did a piece of work uh, involving a major public sector entity there over a period of two or three years. Um, I kept expecting that a wad of 100 euro notes would be thrust in my direction to make the right decision. I I'm pleased to say that that never happened. Um, I never had the opportunity to put my high ethical standards to the test. What was interesting, though, in Romania was that because of the focus on corruption as being endemic and because of the pressure from the European Union to improve standards, the rules were written in order to avoid any possible perception of corruption. And, and that went to the point where normal business could barely function. I'll give you an example. 
Um, the, the tenders for a piece of business um, managing the assets for this particular entity had to come in in sealed envelopes on a by a particular time on a particular day. Um, but they had to be opened in the presence of all 15 of the committee members who were responsible for making the decision. And when it arrived, 14 were present. It couldn't be opened. And it took, I think, seven or eight weeks for all 15 of the committee members to be assembled to open that um, wretched envelope or those wretched envelopes. And, and that's quite a good example of what the Bribery Act in the UK doesn't do, which is to impose entirely unreasonable standards which will bring normal business to a halt. What, one of the points that was made earlier, I think, by Roderick was that in the financial services industry, although the Bribery Act creates um, a criminal framework, we have been used to dealing with a regulatory framework for many years. And I just, I just took from the FSA's rules the, the obligation um, that we are under, any financial services business is under, which is to take reasonable steps to ensure that we do not pay or accept any fees or commissions or provide or receive any non-monetary benefit that would impair compliance with our duty to act in the best interest of our clients or with any such duty which a recipient firm owes to its customers. Now that's a pretty decent statement of, of the ethical principle behind avoiding corruption. And I guess one, one of the, the thoughts I want to leave you with is that the legislation we're talking about today very much works with the grain. I think all major firms in, in our industry already work to that principle. Had, had the legislation happened 20 years ago, I'm not sure that would have been the case. Um, I, I have observed in my time in the city quite a big change in attitudes to bribery and corruption, perhaps at the, the, the strong end of the scale, but to, to the use of payments to influence decisions. Uh, it used to be the case that we would be asked to provide overseas fact-finding trips for clients, which you know, 20 years ago we did because everyone did it. Um, we would not do that now, nor would anyone ask for it now because the, the context has changed so radically. So I think the legislation is very much working with the grain. In our particular case, um, the way that we, um, if you like, regulate employees to ensure that they keep to the highest possible standards is by a gifts and entertainments policy, which I think is reasonably standard across the industry. And all that says is that if, if you are subject to some form of entertaining which costs £25, fine, you can go ahead. If it's between £25 and £250, you have to get approval from a senior manager. And if it's above £250, you have to get it signed off by compliance, and the presumption will be it will not be signed off. So that's, you know, that's a, an example of the sort of codification that has become commonplace. So we do welcome the clarification in the guidance rules of the corporate entertainment point, which was causing so many businesses a lot of angst. Moving on to, sorry, one last thing I'd say on the business context. The greatest area of risk that we identify for us as a business and for business in general is the use of third-party marketing firms, where you don't have the same degree of control over what people do and say on your behalf. I think it will, the legislation will make it much less likely that we will use third-party marketing firms in future. If we do, we will um, subject them to a degree of due diligence, which most will probably find unpalatable. Moving on to the broader ethical context, um, 
One observation that came to me in thinking about this was that I don't think there's any evidence that we as a British firm have ever suffered from the perception that there is less control of corruption in the UK than there is in other countries like the United States or the rest of the EU. But there must be something wrong to judge from the statistics that um, came out last week about the number of prosecutions under the existing legislation being only 9 to 10 in the UK compared to 60 in Germany, which is, by, by every um, account, a country with higher ethical standards in, in business than ours. But I think, I mean, one, one important ethical comment is that markets haven't had a terribly good press in the context of the financial crisis, but this is one area where, where market sanctions work very powerfully. We're all familiar with the case of British Aerospace, well, if you look at the, the way that their share price reacted, um, the share price underperformed the broader indices by 20% over the period when the bribery um, issues came to light. Um, I think if any financial services firm were caught, quite apart from the, the criminal sanctions, but if any financial services firm were caught uh, practicing corruption or bribery, the consequences would be catastrophic. If we did it, we would lose all our public sector business within a couple of weeks. Uh, we would never recover. So I think the, the market sanctions are there and are very powerful, which adds to the, the consistency of the legislation with what's already out there. Um, thinking about, if you like, moral clarity over this issue, I think it's quite hard to argue that there are any circumstances in which bribery can be justified. Um, and, and I think that's absolutely true in a business context. I, I, I thought through a few examples where it may not be quite bribery in the sense in which the legislation uses it, but where, again, the, the use of uh, money to influence a decision um, is important. Um, charities do it all the time. Um, if you want to, um, if, if you're suspected to be a donor, a potential donor to a charity, you will be treated to lots of corporate entertaining. St. Paul's Cathedral do it. If, if, if we suspect any of you are a big donor, you will get personal tours of the cathedral with the dean and, and one of the canons. So we are trying to influence your behaviour. It's, it's completely above board, it's completely transparent, but the use of influence is there. And, and there was one fascinating example recently in the public sector. I don't know if you remember that at the beginning of the Libyan crisis, the British government was under pressure for being too slow to rescue individuals in the UK who were trapped in Libya, much slower than the French or the Americans. And um, it was reported that uh, the um, British government had made payments to Libyan public officials to speed up the exit of British nationals from the country. And I'll, I'll read you, the, this is a quote from the Financial Times back in February. What it said was, the Foreign Office categorically denied the depiction of the payments as bribes, but it confirmed that fees were paid to facilitate, note that word, to facilitate the evacuation. The revelation is an embarrassment to the government, not least because the long-standing official policy is never to pay bribes. Um, and then there's a, goes on to be an explanation about the fact that the, the money was used to pay fees for aircraft handling charges at Tripoli Airport. But I think that's a very interesting case because clearly the legislation, um, and indeed the, the pre-existing legislation, talks about facilitation payments being just as bad as, as bribery in the pure sense. But here is a case where public opinion 
um, force the government's hand to use facilitation payments for an end outcome, which I think most people would agree was in the national interest. Now, is there one law for the public sector and one law for businesses? I don't know, but that was an interesting example. To, 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 to finish up, um, I think I would just um, re-emphasise that the legislation is working with the grain of where most organisations have gone. Um, it won't require a major change in attitude or a major change in process and policy. I think the, the, the hysterical comments yesterday in that noted journal of record, the Evening Standard, are completely off the mark. There are, there are far more uh, intrusive pieces of regulation and legislation which have affected us as a business than the Bribery Act. I think it's, it's, um, it plays to the standards which most companies have already adopted. Um, and I think what it requires, what it will require, is, in, is already in line with best practice. Thank you, Mr Chairman. Gavin, many, many thanks for that. It's opened up some uh, interesting points for discussion, I think, uh, particularly around areas like due diligence, <coughs> third parties, and, um, and also whether everyone agrees that um, it shouldn't impose um, cha major change. Um, clearly the world is changing. It's been nearly 500 years since uh, John Donne uh, wrote what he wrote. And it's been 34 years since the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act was introduced in the United States. Um, what I'd like to do now is to ask for questions. Um, there is no microphone for the audience, so I'd ask you if you have a question, raise your hand, I'll point to you, and then if you can stand up, state your name and um, your organisation if you have one, and um, please speak up. And we look forward to some good questions from you. Right, right at the back, please. Roger. Hello. Yes. Um, yes. The the general offences uh, sections one and two, uh, section one being the general active bribery offence, and section two being the general passive bribery offence. That is, the receipt or requesting of bribes. Um, are based on the notion that bribery is about the inducing an improper performance of a relevant function. And those functions are the ones you'd expect, really, they confine bribery to its traditional areas, public functions, functions associated with business, etc. Now, that test um, as to whether there is an intention to induce an improper performance of a function is quite involved and it takes, uh, takes it requires three sections, in fact sections three, four and five in, in order to define that test and how a court would go about assessing whether or not there's been an intention to induce improper performance. Section six, to what the, uh, the, the interest of the uh, questioner um, was a different model. That model is the influence model. Now, what Section 6 requires is that there is evidence which shows that um, there was uh, an advantage, an advantage is a technical term, although it, it can mean almost anything, but an advantage is offered or given to a foreign public official or to somebody else at that official's consent or request, 
um, in order to influence that foreign public official and in order to influence the foreign public official so that a, um, uh, so as to re obtain new business or retain existing business or to obtain or retain an advantage in the conduct of, of business. Now, the, the reason that the improper performance element uh, is, is not there is because uh, our experience and the experience of the Serious Fraud Office uh, and the CPS, to a very much uh, lesser extent, was that when dealing with cases of bribery in foreign jurisdictions, it's sometimes nigh on impossible to ascertain with any accuracy just what duties people that might purport to be public officials are subject to. And also bearing in mind that in order to effectively, uh, order to prosecute effectively, you need to have the cooperation of the government uh, for which this um, person is ostensibly working for. Uh, this creates all any number of uh, problems uh, which we felt would make um, the use of the Section 1 offence in foreign jurisdictions um, uh, less than effective, less than satisfactory. So we opted for the influence model. Uh, I think that the, the model in Section 6 uh, still uh, creates quite a a significant uh, threshold for the prosecutor to, to, to get over, but it, it is a different model. And there is, uh, this is covered in the guidance, in fact, uh, on the, in the policy section before the principles it is covered. The, it's, it's true that um, conduct which amounts to a Section 6 offence will, will often be uh, in theory, uh, prose uh, prosecutable under Section 1. Uh, there is bound to be some overlap there, but uh, the Section 6 um, is, uh, we would say, um, unapologetically easier uh, to prosecute uh, than uh, Section 1 in foreign jurisdictions. Thank you. Yes, please. Uh, yes, uh, there are. <laughs> um, <clears throat> first of all, um, we, you have to be sure that what you're paying is a facilitation payment. I mean, if I could revert back to the Libyan a example, um, and, and we also uh, touch on this particularly in the uh, Quick Start Guide. Uh, the, the guidance, by the way, is that the sort of purpley one is the full guidance and the, the green one is the uh, quick start guide. Um, often uh, fees, uh, something that is characterised as a fee, can indeed be a facilitation payment, but sometimes it is uh, a fast-track fee. And indeed, in the, in the Libyan situation, I think the Foreign Commonwealth Office were being completely uh, genuine when they said that basically what was happening here was that due to the crisis, uh, the, uh, the people charging the fees in Libya had just inflated their prices uh, because they could do so. Uh, and people who are paying 
such inflated fees um, will not, in our view, be paying facilitation payments. However, um, on the assumption that facilitation payments uh, will continue to, to, to be paid in the sort of circumstances in which you're talking about, first of all, the defense of duress would apply. Now, duress only applies where uh, the payment is made to avoid um, death or personal injury. But um, in your sort of situation, I, I could imagine that that uh, could well reasonably be something you might uh, be in fear of. Um, less than that, if the facilitation payment is made in circumstances that uh, amount to extortion, then um, it's clear that, and here I, I, sh I, I quickly make reference to the guidance, the joint guidance that was issued by the Director of the Serious Fraud Office and the Director of Public Prosecutions. And in that guidance to prosecutors, which is in guidance to prosecutors uh, rather than guidance for the public, uh, as, as in the case of our Section 9 guidance, but which, which is available uh, to the public from their respective websites, it makes it clear that uh, the fact that the payer of uh, the bribe, in this case facilitation payment, was in a vulnerable position, and by that they mean in a position whereby if they didn't pay it, uh, they were going to suffer some quite significant difficulties and, and probably quite significant losses, uh, then that would weigh very heavily indeed against uh, a prosecution. So uh, I, I think that um, the likelihood of somebody paying, of, of, of somebody being prosecuted for the payments of something which is correctly identified as facilitation payments in the sort of circumstances that uh, you described is very, very low indeed. Okay. Robert, do you want to add to that? Yes, if I could. I mean, it, it's a very, very interesting case, I think, this um, issue of sort of disaster situations. And I've got a few observations to make on it. The first is that whatever organisation you are, and in whatever circumstance you're operating, as soon as you pay a bribe, you are part of the problem. You've become part of the problem, and you're embedding the problem for those who have to live in that society when you leave. And that has to be a major consideration, I think. We're not talking about negligible sums here. I've heard figures from um, NGOs uh, about trying to get Land Rovers in uh, through the airport in Haiti immediately after the earthquake, when they were asked to pay $50,000. Now, that's not a facilitation payment. That's a lot of money. It's a big bribe. There is you know, a real assessment there of um, what happens if I don't pay the $50,000, of course, if, if life is at stake. And that's a, a thought process that has to be gone through. I, I won't provide an instant solution to that. But what I, I would say is a few things. First off, um, that's $50,000 from one organization, and that's $50,000 less aid money available in a critical circumstance. Secondly, um, it's a well-known experience. As soon as you pay one bribe, you'll end up paying lots of bribes because you're known as the organization that is willing to pay bribes. Thirdly, you quickly get into a situation where the immediate risk to life and limb passes, but you're there for a longer-term development project, one, two, three years. And in that circumstance, you're locked into the bribe paying, um, and it's very, very difficult to get out of. So what I would say towards organizations in that circumstance is... Um, you must remember that as soon as you pay the bribe, uh, you've become part of the problem. 
and you have to do everything possible not to pay it. There are all sorts of things you can do in those circumstances not to pay the bribe. And I do wonder how well-equipped um, uh, emergency relief teams are, for instance, when they've got so many other things to concentrate on, how well-equipped they are with bribery training to know how not to pay bribes. And you can learn that kind of thing, and I think people need to, to be taught it and to operate along those principles. Thank, thank you for that. I just, just add very, very briefly, there is a set of guidelines for NGOs and charities being written at the moment um, <coughs> via uh, the Bond Group, uh, Transparency International, Mango, and a lot of other uh, NGOs that are involved in this. And that will be coming out for consultation probably within about a month. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, if, if, if the question is why, why is the legislation any different from what's gone before? Um, well, or, why is the business response going to be any different to well, what we already have? Yes. I mean, my, my view would be that the business response to um, well, it's a combination of regulation and greater public scrutiny more intrusive press and so on has has been to raise standards. Um, now these, the, the greater public scrutiny and intrusive press may not may not be the best of motivations, but the fact is it's worked. Um, and I, I think the talking narrowly about the financial services industry, the concern with reputational damage is probably higher now than it ever has been. Um, so the 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 balance between using something that's corrupt to win business and generate revenue relative to the loss of um, potential revenue from reputational damage is swung radically the other way. So uh, that, that, that was really behind my thought process that this is effectively is, is putting the cap on a, a building that's already there. Um, just, just a quick one. I, I think it's really important to recognise that um, corruption is relatively recently on the agenda of uh, international awareness. In 1990, there was no anti-corruption NGO in, in the world. You know, Transparency International was formed in 1993. In 1995, there was no tool to say which were the most corrupt countries in the world, because the corruption perceptions index didn't exist. In 2000, there was no international treaty against uh, corruption, because the United Nations Convention Against Corruption happened in 2003. So I think you know, what one has seen is, is over the last 20 years a, a massive change in the way corruption is understood and being dealt with and so on. So I think, um, you know, or, to some extent, one is riding the crest of a wave in terms of public awareness and so on. Um, but there is an, an enormous amount of awareness and information and a real dedication to fight this in a way that wasn't there 20 years ago and I don't think will go away. One sees in the North African context, you know, citizens are pretty angry about corruption and that's going to stay, I think. Claire. Uh, yes, I just shout. I, yes, if you yes. wish. <laughs> I, I think the question, um, Nina, is, 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 very, is a very good one because whilst it's true that the current focus and the current... Um, Whilst it's true that there is a current um, focus and the current concern of organisations for the reputational risk means that there is a lot of work being done in this area, unless there is true cultural change, who is to say the next big issue will not come along shortly and displace this from people's minds? So I feel there is a warning to us here in that um, this is important. We have identified why it's important. And the implementation has to avoid being a tick box, avoid getting um, caught 
approach and be really about changing the way in which the organisation thinks about the manner in which it does business and who it does business with. Next question, please. Well, as I said um, earlier, um, I think um, Robert made a very good point. I mean, first of all, uh, a facilitation payment is, is a small fee paid to a public uh, official um, in order for them to do something which they um, should do anyway as, as, as part of their job. Now, um, typically a facilitation payment will, will, will simply be a cash transaction and it won't involve any kind of documentation whatsoever. I mean, where you are into the realms of a, a properly um, documented fee for a fast-track service, then you're not, that, that is not a facilitation payment. Now, the interesting thing about this, I think, is that, um, what, and I'm sure um, Robert will have more to say about this, uh, one of the... Um, one of the best ways of finding solutions to ad addressing facilitation payments is through uh, collective action, particularly uh, sectoral action. Um, it'd be particularly good, we find, if you can get a, a big multinational behind it um, leading a number of uh, smaller concerns. But um, pressure brought to bear in that way often has the has um, the effect of turning something which was a facilitation payment because it was entirely informal uh, cash transactions into something more formal, which still um, has the same impact uh, uh, domestically for the official. In other words, it provides a means of um, getting some form of re remuneration uh, for their for their job, but it's put on a more formal uh, official. Uh, footing. Uh, this uh, is um, something which is happening more and more. Uh, but the point I think is that if you have uh, a, an invoice, if you have something on paper uh, that shows that you are paying for a particular service, then the, that is unlikely to be interpreted as a facilitation payment. For the purposes of the primary uh, act, right. I mean, the, there's a whole literature on facilitation payments, and a very good test is where does the money go? If it goes to the exchequer, it sounds like a legitimate payment. If it goes into somebody's pocket, it's probably not. You get better in the sense of um, improved profitability. I'm not sure that's why I asked the question. Right. What is it that will, that will benefit? I mean, that, there is quite a large body of work on that. There's a, there's a body of work from economists that looks at um, the effect on 
the corporate sector as a whole, working in corrupt economies versus non-corrupt economies. There is also work on individual companies, looking particularly at the impact on uh, a company when they've had a corruption issue and they've been caught. Um, and and um, so, you know, one can look at that in the case of, uh, of, of the transgressors. Um, there is also some work on um, why might it be a benefit of a company to, uh, to do some prevention. Um, figures and statistics are hard to come by because um, what generally happens is um, those studies are based on um, uh, large surveys that are not specific to that company. So for instance, they'll look at the uh, additional cost of um, securing a contract that comes off the bottom line um, and the average is, is assumed to be about 10% uh, that erodes profitability. Or they'll look at um, an assumed level of bribe paying and how that might erode profitability over the lifetime of a service contract, for instance. So there, there you know, quite apart from you know, um, staff morale and reputational impacts and so on. But there are indeed counter arguments as well. You know, I've heard arguments about staff morale, for instance, where people say, well, look, you know, this is yet another piece of red tape and to implement this bribery act thing and tell my people in the field they can't pay bribes anymore, that's going to, you know, they'll all desert me and go to my competitors. So there are counter arguments to those things. But, you know, it seems to us from TI, and of course we would say this, that if you look at the arguments in the round, they're pretty compelling in favour of trying to, you know, to eliminate this. One can't ignore the fact that there are two sides to every coin. No, well, I mean, of course, uh, my comments were um, uh, in relation purely to what are um, termed uh, facilitation payments. Um, if you are a small uh, UK business that is entering for the first time the, uh, the market in, in China relying on an agent, then uh, if, if you look at our guidance, you'll see fairly clearly that... Uh, you are advised to do some due diligence on an agent before that agent is, is, is hired um, and you are advised that uh, perhaps it might be a very good idea to build in some anti-bribery um, uh, conditions in any contract that you have uh, with an agent. Um, so, I mean, effectively, what the guidance is telling you to do is to do what is uh, practical for your business in seeking to prevent those who are acting for you in China from, from bribing on your behalf. Now, obviously, what is regarded as adequate in those circumstances will, uh, will depend very much on the nature of your business, how big it is, uh, what sort of structure you've got, um, and what is right for you. Uh, is um, not going to be right for a much bigger company or perhaps one that's even smaller uh, than you are. So it's all about proportionality, but it's not about um, just having the paperwork in place. You're quite right, and I think I made it clear when I was speaking earlier that this isn't about a, this isn't a tick box exercise. It's not about paper compliance. Uh, well, the point I was making about uh, the mindsets moving away from uh, focusing on legal protection uh, to actually thinking about prevention really was about that if you think about prevention properly, if you try and do something that is proportionate uh, but uh, practical, uh, the serious fraud office, for example, are going to be far more interested in that than they are in a nice glossy anti-bribery policy that uh, is, is sent out to all your agents and all your employees. So um, 
policies, paperwork can be important, but you're quite right. The point is that uh, in the circumstances that you described, the thing to do is to focus on practical things that might actually have an impact in preventing the agent bribing on your behalf. No, I wasn't going to. Well, I wasn't going to add to that. In okay. except to, um, but if I do, as you've now given me the mic, I think I, I almost um, want. To, well, I suppose what I'm really saying is we mustn't fool ourselves into thinking that bribery will not remain tempting. Organisations will still find this is an easy route, and there is a competitive advantage in taking that route, um, like it or not. And therefore, whatever it is we structure, has to be so that it really does seek to create a better level playing field and offer carrots as well as stick to all those involved to actually take themselves away from the temptations. I, I just should also add that uh, China has um, taken steps to put in place some fairly draconian legislation um, uh, recently, uh, which is a very good uh, step. Uh, and yes, I mean, I, I, don't think, I, I don't think I've got very much to add. Well, thank you very much. On, on that note, and uh, the legislation in China actually is life-threatening, so it is pretty, pretty severe. I'd, li I'd like to uh, wind it up and thank you very much for your questions and invite Sir Charles Tilley, Chief Executive of SEMA, to make some closing remarks. comments earlier. Um, good evening. It's dark here. Uh, I can't see anything. Um, uh, if I could just uh, briefly summarise what we've, what we've heard this evening. I think uh, we've started with some, uh, a good history lesson from Jeff Kay and in particular John Dunn's quote, which uh, you're obviously very keen on, twice commented upon. Um, we then uh, uh, had Roderick McCauley, you know, really the source of, of, of the act here. So, you know, thank you very much indeed for spending time with us. Um, and starting, I think, with, you know, that the, the basically uh, bribery is bad for business. Uh, and uh, when we heard Robert Barrington's comments about this was costing a trillion dollars a year, it clearly is very bad for business. So we need to assess the risks, uh, the mitigations, and something which I think is, is, is what you know, we in business, charter management accountants are absolutely you know, focused upon, is that need for, for uh, professional judgment. And it's not always going to be easy. And Gavin gave uh, some you know, really challenging examples and some of the questions that you've also raised are some uh, very challenging examples of, of, of how it's going to be difficult. Um, if you need help, Claire Rigidaro then uh, told us that there are 1.8 million people out there willing to give us help, so that's good, but I hope you don't need to use all of them. Um, but what we do need to do is, is uh, act now. Um, we've got to be ready for uh, implementation of the Act. It's about putting in processes and procedures and again listening to some of the questions this evening, it's about making sure that those questions, the, the, the processes and procedures once putting in place are fit for purpose. Uh, this is not about just processes to, um, it, to, to cover up the issues, it's actually about making sure that we're doing the right thing. Um, and then uh, in, in terms of, 
of, uh, uh, of of really the whole 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 of this issue. What we're doing is is ultimately um, we've talked about being bad for business. If we get this right, it's absolutely good for business. And uh, and and in that respect, um, again, uh, referring to one of Gavin's comments, uh, you know, the importance of our reputation is absolutely key. And if we don't uh, if we don't address these issues, the impact on our reputation can be massive. Uh, and impact uh, our businesses potentially fatally. Um, so ultimately, it's the, uh, the the tone from the top which is going to be crucial in terms of getting this uh, right throughout your organisations. Um, and, uh, and 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 listening to uh, Robert, who certainly had to leave us, um, this is very much about being the right thing to do. Uh, and I think his facts clearly demonstrated that. Um, and then uh, uh, turning to Gavin and, and, and his comments, uh, <clears throat> if you're operating in countries with a uh, score below 100, whatever that precisely means, uh, you need to have ultra, <laughs> ultra high standards. But actually, I think you need to make sure you've got those high standards really everywhere. Um, and uh, let's avoid bureaucracy. Um, the Act does not require us to have bureaucracy. It's about pragmatism uh, and... Uh, uh, the, um, I, th I think one of the things which was really worrying business and now has been addressed by the guidance is, is the whole area of concerns around uh, corporate entertainment. So if I can just add from a personal perspective, uh, what I've found is, is that being practical is absolutely crucial. We know what is wrong. If you have to think about these things, you know what's wrong. Um, so what everyone needs is most importantly, support from the top of their organisation. And I think time to address the situation. It, it is, it, you, 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 we don't want to become a part of the problem and you need the time to think, how can you actually avoid a, a particular issue? Sometimes that's going to be very challenging. We all know that we want to be part of our organisation's uh, success and we also want to make sure that our own reputations remain successful. So, what are the next steps as far as SEMA is concerned? Um, well, we'll actually publish a summary of uh, tonight's event. Uh, uh, we will uh, put the actual debate itself and the discussion online. Uh, and we'll obviously continue to promote issues around uh, the Act itself uh, and, of course, the ethics agenda uh, in, in general. Uh, you've got the ethical checklist here. Um, you've got some guidance in connection with implementing the uh, Bribery Act as well uh, on your chairs. Um, <coughs> and it's, it's just a part of being uh, what is a, you know, a, a key role, it seems to me, in running business, and that is always doing uh, the right thing. It's good business and it requires our professional judgment, which as professionals is something that we are all trained to do. So, if I may, thank you very much indeed for coming. Um, I, uh, I think the questions that have been asked tonight have been absolutely excellent and very, very helpful in developing the debate. Uh, many thanks to our speakers, Jeff Kay, um, uh, excellent chairmanship. Um, I've talked too much, you talked just about the right amount of time. Um, and then to uh, Clary Godaro, uh, Roderick McCauley, Robert Barrington, who's had to leave us, uh, and um, Gavin Ralston, really relevant expertise, starting with the source of the Act 
then uh, the uh, business uh, coming from both uh, Claire and Gavin, uh, and then I think the, 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 the insights and transparency international really, really helping take us uh, forward with these issues. And, uh, and then uh, finally, if I can say, um, please do join us for drinks. They're going to be uh, outside and maybe some food as well, I'm not sure. But uh, thank you very much indeed for coming and thank you very much indeed the panel and our chair.